Before I hand it over to the next inductee, I'd be remiss if I did not talk about Tommy John. I've been given an opportunity as one of the only players, the only one right now, to be inducted in the Hall of Fame with Tommy John surgery. It's an epidemic. It's something that is affecting our game. It's something that I thought would cost me my career, but thanks to Dr. James Andrews and all those before him, performing the surgery with such precision has caused it to be almost a false read like a Band-Aid you put on your arm. Touchdown! Alabama wins! Jack Nicklaus wins his sixth Masters, his 20th major championship. At the age of 46, four years older than anyone ever has been as a champion of the Masters. This is the Victory Over Injury Podcast, presented by Andrew Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center. Here's Dr. Michael Ryan. Hello, pros and joes, jocks and docs, trainers, therapists, coaches, and fans. Welcome to the Victory Over Injury Podcast, presented by Andrew Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center in beautiful Birmingham, Alabama. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Ryan. This podcast is for athletes, competitors, trainers, therapists, fans, sports enthusiasts, and anyone interested in learning more about the legends who have been vitally influential in the world of sports medicine, rehabilitation, athletic training, mental preparation, athletics, and more. We are going to peel back the layers of sports injuries from multiple perspectives to gain a greater understanding of what actually goes on in the minds of athletes, trainers, physicians, surgeons, therapists, coaches, and more in the face of injury. And whether or not you are an elite athlete, recreational participant, passionate fan, or occasional observer, we hope to bring you into our world to understand what it takes to achieve victory over injury. It is with my greatest honor and absolute privilege to provide listeners today with insight, experience, and knowledge from a man known to most as the most important man in sports. His accolades are too numerous to count with an extensive history of founding practices, fellowships, research institutes, and sports programs, sitting on numerous boards, holding numerous academic appointments and honorary degrees, and the recipient of countless awards across all spectra of the sports and humanitarian world, in addition to authoring hundreds of peer-reviewed publications and books. He has performed over 50,000 surgeries on patients ranging from those simply looking to regain function and quality of life to the planet's greatest athletes, and while doing so has trained over 300 surgeons who now restore function to thousands more. I would argue that this man is not the most important man in sports. Rather, he is the most important man in all of sports, sports medicine, and sports culture whose influence extends beyond the famous athlete. He is one of the most influential surgeons of our time and a pioneer in the realm of fixing the injured. He is an expert artisan on the stage of the theater known as the operating room who has perfected the craft of caring for active people, and he consistently executes this art with precision and excellence. A master seer of human emotion and drive and a communicator extraordinaire, he possesses a unique finesse and bedside manner that instills trust, optimism, and confidence in all patients he treats. He is the quintessential team player and captain, valuing the opinion of all team members to achieve the ultimate goal of improving the well-being of the patient. He helped craft the world of sports medicine as we know it today, and is the epitome of the ultimate gifted, charismatic, skilled, and human surgeon. A living legend, an icon, a mentor, a godfather of sports medicine, and a humble orthopedic surgeon. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no better way to start this podcast. Without further ado and pleasure, Dr. James Andrews. Thank you, Dr. Ryan. I just preface what you just said by something... My wife tells me almost daily, and, and a quote that my wife Janelle is famous for, and that's, if you're still talking about what you did yesterday, you're not doing much today, so maybe we should move on 
after that introduction. I, I think it's a great <laughs> quote, and, and you're, you're 100% right. I think it's a, it's a great way to approach things. Um, I think, first of all, I probably owe you an apology because I heard from one of the staff members upstairs uh, that you went to look at your locker and there was a lock on it. And it confused you a little bit. It was actually my lock. And so a staff member, one of our OR techs, Chad, told me that you looked around and you were wondering where your boots were. Fortunately, you found them, though. I will say, in my defense, Sarah Fisher was the one who told me to use that locker. You know, I hadn't used that locker but once in 10 years. And I've used my boots that one time. Yeah. uh, And my boots were laying right there where I left them. So I found everything. That's all I needed was was my boots that I had right. Yeah. and left marked on the front of them <laughs> so I could remember their mind. <laughs> That's great. Well, I'm fortunate it was okay because I, 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 she assured me that it wouldn't be a problem. But, no. Uh, um, it's, it's an honor. But anyway, thank you for being here. I'd like to start off just kind of getting a, a background. You were, you were born in Homer, Louisiana, uh, May 2nd, 1942, born James Reuben Andrews. And, and as I understand, Reuben was your father's name, is that correct? That was my father, Reuben Henry Andrews. And growing up as a kid, I understand that you, you were kind of an active kid, also had to do a lot of uh, work with the family, did a lot of work at a dry cleaner, picked cotton. Give me a little <laughs> bit of explanation and kind of insight into, into what you were like as a kid. Well, my wife kids me all the time about saying that I picked cotton, but I actually did. I was born in New Orleans at Touro Hospital when my father was uh, at Camp Polk, which is an Army base in South Louisiana, getting ready to go overseas for World War II. And... About the time that I was born, he was shipped out. So my mother and I and my sister, who was a couple years older than I was, uh, as a baby, we moved back up to North Louisiana, where my mother's father and mother lived on a farm. And they were big landowners up there. And and so I grew up the first three or four years of my life living with them, with my father overseas. And in doing so, I continued to be a farm boy most of my young life. And I still appreciate all the things that I learned living on a farm, including, believe it or not, picking cotton. I'll tell you, I was always sort of aggressive to figure out how to get things done and maybe get out of some of the hardest part of of different types of work. And so it didn't take me very long with dragging a big sack behind me picking cotton to learn how to drive the tractor. (laughs) (laughs) Learn that pretty quickly then. So uh, I was able to advance pretty well up the ladder on the farm, and I learned a lot of lessons living in the country. That's great, I bet. And uh, growing up, I understand that with your mother's parents, your grandfather became a big influence in your eventual sort of career trajectory. Is that correct? Yeah, my grandfather was a a country gentleman. Uh, He was very smart, but having lived in the country when he was a kid in that same area, they actually, his family moved from through Georgia on a covered wagon and settled that land in North Louisiana up in Claiborne Parish. So he never had the opportunity to go to school. Uh, the story is that uh, he walked to school, which was 11 miles away when he was in the first grade, and that's all he went to. And from then on, he was uh, back working on the farm and didn't have any, any real education. The fortunate thing was that my grandmother, believe it or not, went to college and, and had a degree as a teacher. And that was real unusual for anybody in her age group, particularly female, as you might expect, to have graduated from college. So my grandfather ran the farm and all the property, and my grandmother kept all the books. And my grandfather always wanted to be a doctor. And of course, that was his ambition. Of course, he never was able to do that because he had no education. But he he became the country doctor, and he developed salves and all different types of little medications. And people would would have something wrong with him. He'd come to him, and he'd, he'd doctor him up as best he could. As a, as a non-physician. 
but I, re I say I remember. I've been told this so many times. I would think that I remembered it, but he used to rock me on the front porch, and he planted the seed, which is so important when you're young for somebody to lead you in the right direction. But he planted the seed in my mind at an early age when he said to me, after when he would rock me, he said, you're going to be my young doctor when you grow up. So that was always my ambition. It was never any other choice. My whole career, starting in grammar school, junior high, high school, college, and further education, was that I was going to be a doctor. So he planted the seed, uh, and that started my career. Yeah, and that seed eventually became your calling, which is, is, is amazing. And obviously, there are different doctors, primary care physicians, different types of surgeons. What was it about becoming a doctor that it eventually led you to sports medicine and orthopedics? Well, as you might expect, when my father came home from overseas, he had been a quartermaster in the uh, Army Air Force, and he'd been overseas and came up through the North African campaign through into Italy. And his, he had learned uh, a trade while he was in the military as a quartermaster. So when he came home, uh, we moved to Homer, Louisiana, which was the town 15 miles from where out in the country where we lived with my grandparents. By the way, when he came home after four years, my mother was trying to introduce me to my father. She said, this is your father. This is your daddy. And I remember I went and got his picture that had his military uniform on that my mother had had all those years while he was away. And I said, that's not my daddy. This is my daddy. <laughs> so it took me a while to adjust, obviously. Yeah. But anyway, we moved back to Homer, Louisiana, which was a small town, the parish seat, and in that town, 4,000 people, you can imagine uh, athletics was all of the social activity that you really had, and it sure. was big in that town. So my father, by the way, had played football in college at Northwestern State in Louisiana, and he had left college early and, and got drafted. So he was real big into athletics, and he was a big guy. He was, in those days, he was 6'2", 260 which uh, made him an offensive-defensive tackle. Yeah. He got involved in everything we did in sports and, and, I would say, pushed me along. And back in those days, you, you played seasonal sports, which meant you played football, basketball, baseball, and track. Okay. And that's what really got me involved in sports medicine. Having done that in high school and in college, I really wanted to be what I, we called a team physician. We didn't have the, the word sports medicine hadn't even been developed yet. But I, I knew that if I wanted to be a team physician, I'd have to get a medical degree. And as I found out later, to really be a team physician, you need to be an orthopedic surgeon. So that's what led me into orthopedics and into sports medicine was the fact that I had that background as an athlete. And I wanted to mix medicine with athletics. Yeah. And how do you do that? Sports yeah. medicine. That's fantastic. So that's how it all started. Yeah. And, and I really want to focus on that idea of what you mentioned prior to sports medicine. It was really this idea of the team physician. How do you think you as a sports medicine physician and team physician approach treating patients differently? Uh, or also, how do you deliver care different than a standard orthopedic surgeon or even an orthopedic surgeon who is trained in arthroscopy but is not a sports medicine specialist? Number one, you have to make yourself available. Availability is the key. And then communication. As a team physician, you can't sit in the office as a specialist in arthroscopy, for example, and just have athletes sent to your office for you to operate on. As a team physician, you've got to be readily available during the week for injuries. 
you have to visit the training rooms of the high school or colleges or, or the, the pro training rooms, whatever level you're team physician for, and you have to spend time there. And the main thing is you have to cover the athletic events. So you really got two jobs. You've got the job of seeing athletes and operating on them in your in your clinic and in your hospital, but you've also got the job of evaluating the, and taking care of athletes on the field and in the training room all during the week and, and covering the games, particularly in the South. As you well know, football is king. So the main sport that we're covering in the South on, on Friday night high school football games and, of course, college games on Saturday and for me, pro games on Sunday. So it's a full-time job. You're not going to have any time as a team physician to play golf, for example. Your, your handicap's going to stay up around 20. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the passion and the love of sports that helps you stay that involved as a team physician. And believe me, uh, it takes a lot of your time. Yeah. Well, and, and that's a, uh, another thread I want to pull on a little bit. I've talked to some other people. Jimmy Ryder, who is uh, one of your former athletic trainers you worked with quite a long time, who now works uh, up with us in the operating rooms. But um, that relationship that he mentioned that you have a, a very unique capacity to create these relationships with not only the trainers, the therapists, uh, but the entire athletic staff. How did you identify that that was such an important aspect of being a good team physician? Well, I, I realized a long time ago where my bread was buttered. <laughs> and I've always had uh, athletic trainers in the back of my mind to really have a relationship with them because they're the front line of defense against athletic injuries. They're the ones right there on the firing line. And you have to have that relationship with them. Uh, and, and I've also always had a, a, a relationship with a top-notch sports physical therapist because they're the ones that rehab them. Of course, the physical therapists and the athletic trainers work together and as far as the athletic trainers are concerned, I've always considered the athletic trainer and myself uh, as uh, joined at the hip, for example. We talk the same language. I respect them. We treat each other as equals. So I'm not there as a team physician to boss them around, but I'm there to discuss things with them, come to decisions with them, get their opinion. You know, uh, I'm, I'm not with an athlete every day, all day long in practice, but I'm there periodically. But the athletic trainer is there full time, and he knows their personalities, and he knows how, how to communicate with them. So I listen to the athletic trainer. And then you've got the physical therapist that you've got to have because a lot of times the rehabilitation of an athlete is more important than, for example, the surgical procedure that you might do on one. So as I said, I've always understood where my bread was buttered. And having been an athlete, by the way, gives you a little bit of a, an edge on what I call the lingo. And every sport has its own lingo. And if you can't understand that lingo, for example, the, the way baseball players talk, you really can't get out on their level and understand what's wrong with them. So you got to know the lingo and you got to know of the ins and outs of each of the different sports that you're actually involved with. That allows you to get down to their level. Let me just say one other thing that's real important. We talk about communication and uh, availability. When an athlete comes to see me, you know, you might have all these accolades and your diplomas on the wall and all these different things after your name. Uh, and if you try to sit in there and talk to them about how smart you are and, and what all you've done and how great you are, you turn them off. And believe me, the only thing that they're really interested in is do you have compassion for their injury and are you going to work to get them well? 
So if you don't show that, you're going to lose them. So the most important ingredient that you can deliver to a, to any patient, whether they be an athlete or a non-athlete, is compassion for their problem. You got to be passionate about getting them well, and uh, that's a real important comment. It's not how smart you are, or how many degrees you've had, or where you went to medical school, or how many fellowships you you did, but it's whether you really care for them. And that's the thing that you have to get when you're going to get inside with their mind and really become their doctor. Yeah, I think that's an incredible point and really speaks to what so many others have said about you in terms of being a master of not only just communication with patients and athletes, but also of, the, of that psychology. When did you initially learn that aspect? Because that's not an intuitive thing that you learn going through medical school. How did you learn that aspect, which then translates into this exceptional bedside manner? You know... Nothing is unique to me or to you as an individual. The things that your philosophy and your what we call your credo of taking care of patients is, is accumulation of what you've learned from all of your mentors. And with me, very little that I call my patient philosophy is, is actually from my own mind. It's what I learned from my various mentors. And I'll tell you, if you want to be successful, you have to give homage and, and tribute to your mentors. And if you wake up in the morning and you're brushing your teeth, for example, and you're looking in the mirror and all you see is yourself, you're not going to be very successful. What you should see in the mirror is images of all your mentors that have brought you along during your entire career. And you pay homage and you go back and think about them. So for me, I had three real, real important mentors in my career. First was my grandfather. Second was my father, who made sure that, that I mixed education with sports. And he actually made sure that education came first. As a matter of fact, when I'd come home in high school, I could never please him. That's how important education was. And I'd come home with all A's and a B. And you know what he would say? He'd look at me, scare me to death. What happened to this? Why, how, why did you make a B? Yeah. And so and that wasn't good enough. Yeah. So that's how important, and, that, and that's how he was a mentor, me in my athletic world and in my education world. And then I, I have to mention, too, that my mother was a mentor because she, was, she had her education and master's degree in education. She was a music teacher. So I, I, not only did I get involved in, in, in my education and my athletics, but I also got involved in music. Really? So, which was unique as an athlete because of her. Yeah. So once I got out of, of college and in orthopedics, the real mentor that I had that was like a father to me, my father, by the way, passed away when I was a sophomore at LSU, and he was 43 years old. Really? And he had lung cancer, and that was from smoking cigarettes in World War II, and he yeah. was hooked on them, and oh, he had an early demise from lung cancer. So I lost my father. So I was lost myself for a while there because of my father figure was gone. And as I, I got into my residency at Tulane, I hooked up with Dr. Jack Houston, who is well known in this part of the country and in the United States and around the world. He was one of the early fathers of sports medicine. And I got to spend the third year of my residency from Tulane Orthopedics with him in Columbus, Georgia. He was the team physician for Auburn University and took care of most of the athletes from the colleges all around this part of the country, including the University of Alabama. So I spent that year with him, 
and that was probably the most important year of my development as an orthopedic surgeon and a, and a team physician. Dr. Houston was unique because he was the first guy in the country to start covering high school football games on Friday night on the field with he and his staff operating on high school kids on Saturday morning and covering a college on Saturday afternoon. Gotcha. And he was the epitome of availability and communication. So that was the, the main mentor that I had. And then, of course, when I finished my residency, I was able, with Dr. Houston's help, to go learn about upper extremity injuries in sports medicine from a Dr. Frank McHugh, mm-hmm. who was the epitome of a team physician at the University of Virginia. And he took care of all the high schools in that whole area and several of the colleges along with the University of Virginia as their team physician. So I really learned from him how important it was to have a relationship with athletic trainers and physical therapists and coaches and and athletes in general. And when I finished fellowship with him, my third mentor that was really unique was Professor Albert Triot, who was the uh, king of, of sports medicine in Europe. Most of the professional athletes, all the soccer players, came to Lyon, France to him to have their surgery done. Dr. Houston was a friend of his, and he, Dr. Houston guided me over there, got me set up with him for a fellowship. So those three people in my career were real instrumental in, in everything I do as far as philosophy and taking care of athletes. That's Dr. Houston, Dr. McHugh, and Professor Triot. Yeah. I mean, those are those are three huge names. Um, and do you think, obviously, Dr. Triot was probably gave you a little bit more guidance with the knee surgery aspect of that. And all of those, you think, are really what helped craft you into the, not only the surgeon, but the team physician you are today? There's no question about it. It put me years and years ahead of, of where I would have been on my own. And again, my mentors was the key to okay. everything that I've done. And then you, after that, ended up working at the Houston Clinic. Is that correct? You took a job with Dr. When Houston. I finished with Professor Triot, I went back to Columbus, Georgia. And that was 1973 in January. And uh, I worked with Dr. Houston and continued to learn under him for 13 years. And uh, after he retired, I wound up moving to Birmingham and started the Andrews Sports Medicine system that you're enjoying right now here in, in Birmingham, Alabama. And with that, uh, I think what I, what I come to understand is that Dr. Houston's main focus was a little bit more knees. And did that guide you to do a little bit more shoulder and elbow at that time? Well, knee was king. Yeah. Football was king. Yeah. Knee was king. Dr. Houston was a, a basically a knee surgeon, but he was he he, he did everything. He he did spine. He did oh, wow. back in those days. You as a team physician, you did everything that came along. His main interest was was the knee and it was football. So that sort of left me there trying to figure out what do I do with all these baseball players. Yeah. And I hate to say this, but in Columbus, Georgia, we had a little bitty clinic and a, just a few examining rooms and a small little clinic building. And we had athletes coming in to see us from all the small colleges, even down in the Panhandle of Florida, Georgia, all the colleges around Alabama, because there wasn't a lot of competition. There wasn't, there wasn't doctors in all these areas taking care of athletes, so they all came to Columbus, Georgia. So I remember, for example, from Florida State, they were sending their baseball players up to see Dr. Houston, and they would come up in the, believe it or not, in the back end of a pickup truck uh, from Tallahassee, and Dr. Houston would tell me, he'd put them all in a cast room, all in one big room. <laughs> and uh, he would tell me, go back there and find out what's wrong with that bunch of uh, goofy baseball players. <laughs> because he wasn't interested in that. Yeah. Of course, they all had shoulder and elbow problems, not knee problems, basically. Right. So 
he threw me into the briar patch back yeah. in those days. So I finally decided if I'm going to have to take care of the upper extremities in these, and it was also golfers. Okay. That was the other group. That he didn't he, he didn't think golf was a, was a sport. Of course it is, and as you well know. And so I said, if I'm going to have to take care of these baseball players, I've got to learn something about them. Because all I did in high school, I played baseball, but I didn't play baseball in college. Yeah. I set about trying to figure out what's wrong with your shoulder, because we didn't know much at all about the shoulder back in those sure. days. Yeah. And uh, the elbow hadn't even come along yet. But that's how I got started in the baseball sports medicine career. Out of default. Yeah, just kind of got thrown, <laughs> thrown, thrown to the other uh, wolves, essentially. And, and that was, I assume, the, the first time you started covering not only local high schools, but you started, I think, at Florida State, Troy State, West Al. Is that when you started getting into the team coverage, team physician scene as well? Yeah, you know, uh, Dr. Houston was a team physician at Auburn. And, of course, that was all, always my desire to, to be involved with Auburn University and Alabama both which were the big schools. But as a young surgeon, young sports medicine doctor, you know, you have to wait your turn. You have to crawl, walk, run. So I finally figured out, and I'd go to the games that usually played at 1 o'clock at Auburn with Dr. Houston, and then I figured out there's a whole bunch of other schools, including Troy, North Alabama, which Livingston, which is West Alabama now, North Alabama, and eight or nine other schools, small schools, that didn't have any coverage. And I finally figured out in my own mind, well, they've got the same number of athletes playing and getting hurt as Auburn does. So I would leave Auburn at the halftime and, and go travel to all these other schools and, and see the, the smaller schools. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I had more athletes coming in to see me from all the, the, the little schools yeah. than Dr. Houston did from one big school. Yeah. And, you know, as, as you well know, uh, here in Alabama, we still take care of those small schools. Yeah, all the time. I think we cover, what, eight or nine colleges from, from Birmingham, from uh, Andrews Sports Medicine yep. on Saturday. Yeah. And, of course, we cover both Auburn and Alabama. So we we finally put it all together and, and took over everything in this part of the country, basically. Yeah. By the way, one of the other schools that we covered back in those days was Tuskegee. Yeah. Tuskegee didn't have anybody. They had nobody doing physicals. Yeah. And we not only took care of Tuskegee, but the interesting story is we took care of Grambling University over in Louisiana. Really? I thought it was important to cover and give some medical care to the predominantly black colleges that were playing big-time athletics and big-time football. And they were not receiving the care that probably And they had no care. I'll tell you that story later about Grambling. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's fascinating. It really kind of set up where we are today, like you said. And uh, I personally want to thank. Well, I know that the rest of the partners here are. You also had the privilege of of seeing the transition of what we consider sports medicine today, where most of the surgery was done open, to nowadays where most of it's done arthroscopically. What was that transition? What was that like seeing that? Well, it didn't come easy for me because Doctor Houston didn't, didn't believe in the arthroscopy. <laughs> okay, that's one thing he was not open minded about when it came to the knee. He was afraid that the average orthopedic surgeon would start putting the arthroscope in every knee that came along because it, it was easy to do and, and they can maybe f- figure out what was wrong with the arthroscope and they didn't really know the indications or anything about how to examine the knee, so he was against it. And I recognized that was like middle 1970s. I realized that that was the new revelation coming in sports medicine. And I was still awfully young, but I knew all the anatomy of the knee and, and the examination of the knee and the, the knee from inside out, outside in, from doing open surgeries like we did. So I got involved with the group in North America helping to develop the early arthroscopy. Uh, and most of the early arthroscopy, of course, was to the knee. 
So I got involved early with it because I was able to go to talk at the meetings and give the anatomy and this, that, and the other. And I was still young, a young orthopedic surgeon. The problem was that Dr. Houston didn't want me doing it. So we were both working at the medical center in Columbus, Georgia, in the hospital that it, he'd been working in at for years. Uh, HCA had built us the so-called doctor's hospital right down the street, and it was all open surgery. Okay. So I started doing a few little scopes, and he didn't really like it. So I had to take my fellow, who we, we had a fellowship program by then, and the fellow was working with me. We had to move over to St. Francis, the Catholic hospital. We built over there, they built an arthroscopy suite with two operate rooms for me. And that's where we did arthroscopy. And we did it across town where he didn't really know about it. He's kind of had to hide it from him a little bit. So, so I, that's how I really got started in arthroscopy. There's a lot of stories related to that, too, we get into later. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, it's a, a fascinating time because it really transitioned to revolution. I, I, I did arthroscopy right? by default, I guess, another, <laughs> another way to look at so it. So we got into the baseball players and the arthroscopy kind of by default. That's <laughs> oh, amazing. By the way, arthroscopy became the greatest revelation in sports medicine in the last 50 years, as you well know. Yeah. That's probably been the, the biggest change to how no we kidding. treat athletes. So with that, what was the transition or impetus for you moving from Columbus, Georgia to Birmingham? Well, Dr. Houston, uh, well, as I said, was a father to me, but Dr. Houston never really wanted to give up any leadership, and I could never determine from talking to him what my future would be other than, you know, we, we say once a fellow, always a fellow. Yeah. Well, that's sort of the way it was. And as my career grew, Dr. Houston was proud of me, and he appreciated all the stuff I was doing, but I was an aggressive young doctor, too. And all of a sudden patients that he expected to come see him were maybe coming to see me and that created some friction then i started having different medical health care companies trying to contact me about moving to atlanta moving to nashville moving to birmingham and start my own center and as it turned out as dr houston got ready to retire i knew it was going to be somewhat of a mess because there have been no clear-cut decisions made about who was going to be the leaders of the, of the Houston Clinic. And it, you were going to have nothing but a bunch of doctors fussing with each other. So I saw an opportunity to move to uh, Nashville, Tennessee. I was on the board of HCA, who had built our Houston Sports Medicine Hospital at that okay. time in Columbus, Georgia, which was a, a second hospital they actually built for us. By the way, I, when they built that hospital, we built the Houston Clinic out there on the outside, outskirts of Columbus, Georgia. And they based it on the, what Dr. Houston and I both did with the number of patients we had. And uh, I met with the people from HCA, that's the Hospital Corporation of America, who had built us the doctor's hospital. And they wanted to know if I would move from St. Francis and join back up with Dr. Houston and brought our patients together, they would build us a, a, the first real sports medicine hospital in the country devoted to sports. And so I, I met with them secretly at a restaurant and said, yeah, that'd be great. That'll get us back together. And and at that point, arthroscopy was, had its foothold. Yeah. And so they built the Houston Sports Medicine Hospital and we built the Houston Orthopedic Clinic, uh, which was right out in the country at that point, uh, north of Columbus, Georgia. Having done that, I was on the board of HCA, which uh, was a privately held company at that point out of Nashville, and I was on their board of directors. They started, as things worked along, we became successful at the Houston Sports Medicine Hospital. They wanted me to, to come to Nashville, and they were going to build me a, an Andrews Sports Medicine Hospital in Nashville. 
Hmm. So I went up, met with them, and right across the street from their headquarters, they had a track of land, and they had a little small hospital that I'd have to work in for a couple of years while they built something. But it'd take two years, which would be a long time for me up there without the proper facilities. And then my wife got involved, Janelle. She was worried about moving to Nashville because of the distance from her family. And her family all lived in Phoenix City, Alabama. Okay. She's real close to her family. And so she took a map and she drew a circle around Columbus, Georgia, about a 200-mile radius. She said, we, you can move anywhere but not out of this circle. So I could <laughs> drive back and forth to see my family. That included Atlanta, by the way, but it included Birmingham. So that's why we picked Birmingham and came here and started the facilities that we built in, in Birmingham, including the, the one we're in today at, at St. Vincent's Hospital. But that's how I got here. Got it. Was through her, yeah. basically. And you make an interesting point as far as your transition with Dr. Houston, obviously being a mentor and like a father to you. But once you started to really hit your stride, there wasn't a transition plan. It seems to me that you found two very promising young surgeons in Jeff Dugas and Lyle Kane that you were forward thinking in that. And it seems to me that you saw to hire them as two guys who could kind of carry on what you'd already built. What do you see in those two, Lyle and, and Jeff, that really caused you to hire them? Well, basically, I saw them as me when I was young. And I saw myself as Dr. Houston. And I said to myself, I don't want to make the same mistake Dr. Houston made and hold these young men back that have such a future. So at some point, I need to get out of their way and turn it over to them. And I learned that by, again, the, the word default, because that had been the problem that we had between Dr. Houston and I. And believe me, leaving Dr. Houston was the hardest thing I've ever done in, in my career. And for a long time, he didn't forgive me for doing that. But as it turned out, everything turned back around to where he realized that was the best thing for me in the long run and he was happy with me but it, it hurt for a while both of those two young men Lyle Kane and Jeff Dugas were both fellows with me at the same time I can't remember what year that they finished you remember it was 2000, 2000. so that's been 20 years ago now yeah I kept both of them here with me out of their fellowship at the same time that tells you how good they were yeah and I knew that they had the talent to be the epitome of a sports medicine physician, uh, both from a, a clinical standpoint and a surgical standpoint, and they had the personalities to carry on uh, if something happened to me and to take the lead and the leadership to run this place. So I stayed here a few years, and I had the opportunity to open up an Andrews Institute in Gulf Breeze, Florida, which was another story. And that allowed me to get off the merry-go-round because I was working really, really hard here. Yeah. I was covering games all weekend, the same thing I'd been doing. I was covering junior high on Tuesday night, high school game on Friday night, two colleges, three colleges sometimes, wow. including Troy, then Auburn, and then Alabama, and then covering the, the Washington Redskins on Sunday. Yeah. And I was doing a whole number of, I hate to tell you how many surgeries when I operated two or three days a week. And I had a heart attack and almost didn't make it. So it was a wake-up call for me. Yeah. So I got over that, fortunately. And then I had the opportunity to move to Gulf Breeze, which was a way to get off the merry-go-round and, and decrease my workload and continue my career and develop something that would be stimulating to me. But also I knew that if I left here i was leaving it in great hands and it was time for them to take over yeah. and they did and they've done an unbelievable job here and by the way we had another young man come along who was a fellow too benton emblem 
who was right behind them. So the three of them have really led the way up here from a sports medicine standpoint. And I hadn't had to come put my hand into what they're doing or messing their business because they have been able to do it at a high level and, and, and left no worries for me, believe me. It was probably the best move that I made as far as continuing my legacy with somebody to carry on that's been been meaningful to me in sports medicine. Yeah, I think they, I would agree, they've done a phenomenal job. I think as a fellow who comes to rotate through here and learn, a lot of times people say, oh, you don't get to work with Dr. Andrews, you know, as much as you used to when you used to be here. But I think that because they are so much in your likeness and their clinical skill and their surgical acumen uh, and just the way they interact and communicate with patients and then also their presence on the field, you really gain a lot of what you've instilled in them through them because they're so excellent at that you know people advance you know you got to be open-minded that's the other thing that i i've learned from dr houston i didn't want to be closed-minded and try to control what they do i welcome new ideas in sports medicine that they've developed themselves and you have to let them be themselves but their core beliefs and their core way of of being sports medicine doctors is something i'm real proud of and they've, they've followed what i taught them with that and and that's still their core thinking of course you know, one of the things you want to do when you train people is you want to train them to be better than you were. Yeah. And I would say that's probably true in what they do, better than what I've been able to do, which I'm really proud of. Yeah. I mean, they're excellent. That may be hard to argue, though, Dr. Andrews. No, I don't think so. <laughs> Another key component of this amazing group and, and fellowship that you've created up here um, and really kind of returning back to something you've mentioned previously was finding a, a physical therapist who can really augment what you do in the operating room. And Kevin Wilk is one of those people. Kevin told me before that the story of you met him at a meeting and walked up to him afterward and asked him to come to Birmingham. Describe a little bit about what you saw in Kevin that really made him stand out as someone who you wanted working with you. Well, as I said earlier, I've always had a top-notch physical therapist working side by side with me. And that goes all the way back to the early days in Columbus, Georgia, uh, when we had George McCluskey who was Dr. Houston's main physical therapist. And uh, McCluskey Rehabilitation developed with Dr. Houston and and with me when we were in Columbus, Georgia. Uh, George McCluskey, by the way, that's a unique situation. He was a a football coach in high school. Dr. Houston knew him from one of the high schools he took care of. And he noticed that Mr. McCluskey had a, a real keen interest in kids that got hurt on the high school football team. And he sort of acted as their athletic trainer because a lot of schools back in those days didn't have trainers the coach would have to work as an athletic trainer so he saw that interest that george mccluskey had and he actually sent george mccluskey and paid his way to go to physical therapy school really so george mccluskey became his main therapist and then when i was at university of virginia i ran into a young physical therapist that was there training named tab blackburn and I recognized that same talent in Tab Blackburn, and I got Tab to move to Columbus, Georgia, and he went to work for George McCluskey, and he was my main physical therapist that worked with me and, and did a bunch of research work as a physical therapist with me and re, uh, research papers uh, while I was in Columbus, Georgia. Then when I moved to Birmingham, I had to find somebody else that would be my sidekick as a physical therapist, and I was at a meeting, and I heard Kevin lecture, and I knew how smart he was. Not only was he a a clinical therapist, but he was also somebody that could deliver a presentation. And I said, man, this guy's unbelievable. So I talked him into moving to Birmingham, and he became my main physical therapist. And when I say my, you know, it's not mine, 
uh, he doesn't belong to me. We're, we're joined at the hip, yeah. and we work together. It drives me crazy when people talk about, uh, that's my athletic trainer, that's my therapist, that's my PA. They don't belong to you. Yeah. We use that word, but that's not really how you look at it. Yeah. We work together. So Kevin's been here ever since, and you know the reputation that he's developed. Absolutely. I tell people that Kevin is the most well-known sports physical therapist in the world. Yeah. No question. Oh, no question. Athletes come here. I remember, I remember when I was here, I often said that certain athletes, big-time athletes, came to see me so they could see Kevin. <laughs> and that's true. Yeah. Well, I think they're, they're still coming up here to this day, even, you know, non-surgically or surgically, you know, they've had the surgery and performed somewhere else. I mean, they moved to Birmingham. Yeah. Yeah. One, for example, was Drew Brees when yeah. he did his shoulder that everybody's familiar with. Drew stayed in and moved here, lived here like four months, working out with Kevin every day. Yeah. That's only, probably the only reason. wasn't his surgery. wasn't me that operated on him, but it was the therapy that Kevin gave him that made him successful again. And you know you know how successful Drew's been, by yeah. the way. And, and let's let's touch on Drew Brees since you bring it up. What was it about Drew Brees that allowed him to take such a devastating injury? Again, credit to you and your team for, for fixing him. But even if you fix it perfectly, like you said, the outcomes are not always guaranteed. What was it about Drew Brees that allowed him to get back to being one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL history? I can answer that question by one sentence. Drew Brees is one of the most competitive persons and athlete that I've ever operated on. Wow. And it's all about motivation. Okay. Uh, he was motivated from the recovery room on, and I knew how important he was from just talking to him when he got hurt, that this guy is, is really special. By the way, just to tell you how special he was, it wasn't just me operating on him. We talked about Lyle Kane and Jeff Dugas earlier, but uh, they were in practice with me at that point, and I had both of them, all three of us, scrubbed in yeah. doing his surgery and so we could get it done precisely and accurately and quick. The three of us actually did his surgery. It's amazing. What, that what, was my team. Yeah. Best team you could put together. Best team you could put together for sure. With respect to Drew Brees, even after he was fixed, he completed a rehab. He had a difficult time being picked up by a team. Miami passed on him. What was it that either the communication that your team had with uh, the New Orleans Saints that really put some faith in them to, to bring him on the team? Well, to answer that question, you got to go deeper than that. Okay. I'd operated on Drew Brees with a terrible shoulder injury. And uh, I'd operate on another big-time quarterback that had uh, a dislocated knee uh, with professional. And they'd both been done about the same time. And I was at combines in Indianapolis doing physicals for NFL combines, which is where we do the physicals for all the college kids coming into the draft. And I got a telephone call that morning one of the mornings when I was there from Coach Nick Saban, who was the coach for the Miami Dolphins. And I knew Coach because he had had been at Coach at LSU where I went to school and everything. So he wanted me to come by his suite at the hotel that afternoon and talk to me. He said, I've got to find a quarterback for this next season. And both of those quarterbacks I'd operated on, both of them were recovering. So I went up to his suite and sat down to talk to him, and he wanted to know between those two quarterbacks who should he hire. And uh, without telling you names, I said, well, let me tell you, uh, I, he said, I understand Drew Brees had a terrible, perhaps career-ending injury. I said, yeah, but you don't know him. I said, he's unbelievable. And he's down there rehabbing every day with Kevin Wilk, and he's going he's gonna to make it. He said, what about the other quarterback? I said, well, 
he had a terrible injury too, but he's he's a great guy. I didn't want to say anything disparagingly about him, but he didn't have the same motivation that Drew Brees had. And I said, you need to hire Drew Brees. And he said, no kidding. So he went back to Miami, and their team physician, who's a friend of mine for the Dolphins, knew about Drew Brees' injury, and he told Coach Saban, he said, Drew Brees will never play again. And so he took his advice. Over yours. And, and, wow. And he hired the other yeah. quarterback who came back the next year and didn't, do, didn't play well. Yeah. Now, the story goes on and on. <laughs> so, as you know, for lack of better terminology, uh, Coach Saban was released from the Dolphins after that year when yeah. they didn't win anything. And Alabama was smart enough to pick him up and hired him as the head coach for the University of Alabama. Well, this went on about two or three years later when he was being real successful, already won a national championship at Alabama. And I was over there covering on Wednesday afternoon a scrimmage. And he asked me to come up to his office after the scrimmage. He wanted to talk to me about a couple of players that were hurt or something. You know, if you get Coach Saban in his office, he's, he, he'll talk. It's it's one on one conversation and it's it's different than when you see him out on the football field. So he looked at me and we started shooting the bull, and he looked at me and he said, "Andrews, do you know that that you're the the reason that I'm the coaching at the University of Alabama right now?" <laughs> I didn't know what he was talking about. Yeah. I said, "What do you mean, coach? I didn't have anything to do with it." He said, "Well, if I had listened to you." And hired Drew Brees, I'd still be coaching at Miami. Miami Dolphins, and I wouldn't be here. <laughs> but because I didn't listen to you, I'm here. Yeah. So that's it. That's the story about uh, Drew Brees and and Coach Saban. That's and, amazing. And uh, fortunately, we got him at Alabama, as yeah. you well know. Well, what's amazing is that even as a successful of a coach as Nick Saban was, even early in his career, he was humble enough to look at you and say, "I messed that one up." You know, I mean, that's to say that. Well, who knows? You know, yeah. It was a gamble either way. <laughs> um, going back to Drew Brees, how did he then end up in New Orleans? What was the impetus for that? You know, I've been working with the Saints since I was in medical school, a residency in, in, at Tulane when they first started the Saints. And I lived in the same apartments during my residency as a lot of the New Orleans Saints football players when they first started down there. And I knew all those guys uh, way back. A lot of them had played football at LSU, and I knew them from LSU, too. So having been born in New Orleans, from Louisiana, I'd always kept up with the Saints, and they'd always sent me players through the years, even though I was the team physician for the Washington Redskins. And I can't remember exactly how it happened, but they contacted me about Drew Brees, and, of course, I told them how good he was doing, and and they signed him, and the rest is history. And... I still have a real close relationship with the Saints. Yeah. I'm actually, for lack of better terminology, uh, orthopedic advisor for the Saints. But I'm the team physician for the Redskins. Yeah, yeah. N- not the Redskins anymore, the Washington, Washington football, football Club. Team, yeah, yeah. But uh, I followed everything with Drew through his Super Bowl win. Yeah. I was with him at that game. Actually, I'd operated on both quarterbacks at that Super Bowl. I'd operated on Peyton Manning and, and Drew Brees. So I was sort of caught between the Colts and the uh, the Saints. Of course, the Saints won there yeah. at the last minute. Yeah. I'm sure that makes it tough for you when you have two players and probably multiple players on both teams that you're I, really I rooting for. Not, not, you know, bragging about who you operated on is not important, but you do have that opportunity to follow their careers. And, and I remember that night, 
I was counting up on the Super Bowl rosters for those two teams, and I had 22 players combined on the Colts and the Saints that I'd operated wow. on playing in the Super Bowl. Wow. Which is that's amazing. pretty amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. I said, oh, my God, how did I get here? <laughs> yeah, oh, my gosh. Well, I just got a text. You, do you want to take a quick break? Because Alexis just texted me if you want to run upstairs. Yeah, let's do that. Let's go see that player right quick. This is the Victory Over Injury Podcast. All right, well, we're back after a little intermission. Dr. Andrews upstairs doing doing things he does best, taking care of patients. So we're, we're coming back. Throughout your career, you learned a lot of things. Why don't you tell me a little bit about your philosophy and how you've developed your, your credo and how you treat patients and, and approach patients? Well, as I've said earlier, nothing is original to any great degree by any individual, including me. But what you do is you, you take what you've learned from all your mentors and from patients uh, and all your experiences, and you, and you wind up developing what's unique to you, perhaps, but made up of all of your past experiences. And I have a uh, patient philosophy that I have tried to live by, and I think I have it here in my pocket. It's called Andrews Institute Code of Conduct Philosophy, Gold Standards, Credo, and Employee Promise and Mission, all in this little card. And this is unique right here because I'll tell you how it came to be used. Occasionally, my wife and I get to stay in a Ritz-Carlton hotel somewhere in the U.S. or whatever, and always noted that they had such good standard of care there, and they, they were all, all the same, the way they presented themselves to you, the way you check in, the way they take care of you, just unbelievable. And so we were checking into a Ritz-Carlton, I forgot what city it was in, at the front desk. And when we got through checking in, I asked the gentleman that was checking Janelle and I in. I said, how do y'all always have such great respect for your clients and everything's the same and everything is, is really so first class? And he reached in his pocket and pulled this this out, the Rich Carlton Credo. And I said, no kidding. And he showed it to me. And I said, can I have that? And as it turned out, I took it home and one of my former patients started the, for example, from Atlanta, started the Waffle Houses. Not only did he start the Waffle Houses, but he started the Rich Carlton Hotels. First one built, I think, was in Atlanta. And I've been taking care of him for years. And so I said, I'm going to find out more about this credo from him. I'll tell you how smart he was. There were four of them that started the Waffle Houses in the United States. And he went to his other partners because he had the idea that he wanted to, to put Waffle Houses at the uh, interchanges on the interstate. And they said, oh, no. His partner said, oh, no, that won't ever work. And so he said, well, y'all give me the rights to them, and I'll do them myself. <laughs> and, you know, the rest is oh, history. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And he then started the Rich Carlton Hotels. Wow. But I took his card like this, and I plagiarized it. Okay. And I turned it into, instead of what you'd use for a hotel, uh, and I kept some of the wordage. So this just tells you that what you do and what it's never just unique to you. It's always your experiences of other people that you put together and you change it a little bit. But, for example, I have in here my patient philosophy on one page. And that's unique, too, because one of my former fellows, oh, it's going back probably 20 years ago, 25, maybe 30 years ago, sent me a plaque after he finished his fellowship with me. And on the plaque, it had Andrew's patient philosophy, and he had all these things listed. There are 10 things here listed 
on the plaque that he sent me to put on the wall and said, these are the things that I learned from you about patient philosophy and how you take care of patients. And so I've had that ever since, but it wasn't unique to me. It may have been what he learned, but he's the one that put it together. And I'll read you what it says. Patient philosophy. The patient is always right. What does that mean? Don't argue with a patient. You know, if they, they got their own ideas, you can mold them into thinking like you do. But if you start arguing with them or debating with them, you lose them. And they're not always right, but you, you've got to make sure they, that they think they're right, okay? Yeah. So don't argue with them. Then the second thing is make sure the patient feels he or she has been treated properly by their previous physician or their other medical providers. Uh, you'd be surprised how critical doctors are about previous care that patients have had. And you just can't do that. You don't know what the circumstances were. Right. Uh, they might have been in the emergency room in the middle of the night and, and they did the very best they could do. You weren't there. So you can't be critical. You can't point fingers. The third one is do not say anything bad about another physician. And as far as, as that's concerned, another person. I talked about my mother earlier and, and, and what she had meant to me. And I remember her telling me over and over again when she said, Jimmy Rubin, you, you asked me my middle, middle name is yeah. Jimmy Rubin. Just, if you can't say something good about somebody, don't say anything. That'll take you a long ways. Yeah. And then number four is always be open-minded. And I talked about that in our conversation, too, particularly. Uh, that was one of the only critical things that Dr. Houston one of the mistakes that he made is he got closed-minded about arthroscopy, for example. So you always got to be open-minded. And then the fifth thing is probably the most important thing that you could say in here, and that's listen to the patient. Yeah. I have a quiz for you, and this is a research project that actually was published. Let's say uh, you've got a new patient in your examining room for the clinical problem, and you walk in the room as an orthopedic surgeon and you introduce yourself and you ask the patient to tell you about their history. What happened to you? Well, the quiz is how long does it take the average orthopedic surgeon to interrupt the patient and start talking yourself? Yeah, I believe it's 12 seconds. Close. Yeah, something very short. 18 seconds yeah. was what the research project said. They just interrupt and they start doing all the talking. If you just, you gotta listen to the patient. And that's the other part of that that I've always said is the history is more important than the physical exam. Yeah. And you just need to sit down like I am, prop your feet up, get them comfortable, let them talk. And don't you interrupt them. Uh, sometimes they won't talk. You have to drag it out of them. And sometimes you get a talker and they can talk for 10 minutes. Well, you got to sit there and listen. Yeah. Then the next thing here, number six, is do not be the first person to make the big statement. Yeah. And everybody asks me what I mean by that. That's a statement like Dr. Houston might have said back in those days. Uh, that arthroscope's worthless. There's no reason to even anybody use that. That's a big statement. Yeah. And it'll come back to haunt you. Yeah. And people will remember that forever. <laughs> so you you got to be careful about making big declaring statements because yeah. things change. And then the next thing is attitude, responsibility, knowledge, desire, and availability are always necessary to be successful. And the next situation is one must always be able to read the patient. You know, in this medical electronic world, we get to spend less and less time with our patients. And we have to read them real quickly. Reading them means you got to figure out their personalities. 
you got to figure out their their motive uh how motivated they are uh you got to figure out what they do for a living let's say you got a young kid sitting there 14 years old you got to figure out what his parents do they might may both be orthopedic surgeons and if you don't talk to the parents and find out what they do you you finish up and don't even know his parents or, or orthopedic surgeons or maybe both of them are lawyers you need to know all that yeah. so that means read the patient figure them out real quick so you know how to handle them yeah you got to figure out their personalities and then the next thing is one must always be able to read the patient and i'll, and I'll explain that to you the last thing is as a physician you must be confident with your diagnosis and, and surgical skills. Your confidence is reflected back and perceived by the patient. That's n- never any truer than when you take care of athletes. Athletes are generally smart people. Yeah. And if you start hemming around, well, maybe, I'm not sure, uh, that could be, using all these questionable verbiages, or I'm not sure I can fix this, that type of language, you've you got to be truthful with them. But believe me, if they figure out that you're not confident in what you're doing, they're out the back door finding another doctor. Yeah. So those are the things that are in this credo, including the code of conduct and expectations, gold standards, three steps of service, and we follow that. By the way, in Pensacola, everybody that works at the Andrews Institute is supposed to have this in their pocket every yeah. day, just like they do at the uh, Ritz-Carlton hotels. Yeah. And it's a constant reminder of how we take care of patients. Yeah. Well, I think it's fantastic. We here as well have done the same thing and we have that same sort of card. And I think it's a, a constant reminder of, of what we're here for, what our purpose is, and that's really to make sure that we provide the best care for the patients. I, I love all those. I think one that I, I think is hard for everyone to do or to develop is reading the patient because that's not an innate skill. Do you think that's something that you had to work on? Was that just naturally something you were born with? That reading the patient thing is a very important part of all those. I mean, it's not hard to do, but you got to try. It's yeah. got to be. It's got to be in your mind that that's something you need to do. And if you neglect thinking about that, uh, you you got so, so many other things you got to do when you're taking care of patients that you forget to do that. Yeah. So it's, you need to be constantly reminded of how important it is to figure that patient out. You don't want to figure them out after you've operated on them. So it's something you need to do as quickly as you can because, you know, we have a big schedule of patients in orthopedic surgery. So you don't have all day, but you got to take care of them and you got to spend the necessary amount of time with them to do all of that. And, you know, I have another saying that that we try to follow. It says, be patient, but do it in a hurry. And that's sort of what we live by in yeah. orthopedic surgery if you know what i mean oh yeah i love it constantly running around cutting corners and running in and out of the room and not sitting down and being patient with the patient they recognize that yeah, absolutely but we do have to be patient with them and but we got to we still got to do things in a hurry and you've got to do all of this and get it done yeah you know that speaks to your skill is, is it sets you apart and even though i think you say that it's it's easy to do if you keep it in mind uh, in practice i think it can be a little bit more difficult but clearly when a- other athletes who've been operating on you come to you and say you know when dr andrews tells you you're going to be fine you trust him and, and you think you've really done a an excellent job of cultivating that 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 trust is such an important thing is that something you've always kind of kept in the back of your mind as well in terms of developing that trust with the patient yeah i mean uh you don't want to talk to them above their head. You want to talk to them at their level, uh, use terminology that they'll understand. 
sometimes when I have new fellows, I'll have them go to the blackboard and explain the surgical procedure to the patient. And I'll sit there and listen to them. And the way they explain the procedure is like they were giving a lecture to a bunch of orthopedic surgeons. And you can't do that. By the way, talking about communication, there's one other thing that's really, really important. And I talked about making sure you know the background of a particular patient, particularly if their parents are there, what the parents do. But there's another thing that, uh, in communication that I think is extremely important. That is, uh, if mother ain't happy, nobody's happy. Yeah. And I see NFL football players like the one we just saw a while ago, and I try to call their parents and talk to particularly their mother. Usually the mother or their aunt's with them. Mm-hmm. But I try to call that mother and, and make sure they know that I'm fixing to operate on their son, regardless of, the, of how old that particular player is. And the other thing that's important, if you see somebody that's in the office as a new patient and you find out that their father or their grandfather is a doctor, you need to call that doctor yeah. out of respect and, and let them know that you're seeing their family member. That's a great point. I mean, that's important because they're worried about their family member and, and they want to know what you're, who's taking care of them and what you're telling them. And, and you'd be surprised when I have some of my family members, grandkids, whatever, see a particular doctor and I never hear a word from them. I, I expect them to call me and, and, and tell me what they're seeing and what they're doing. And that's, again, that's just how to take care of patients. Yeah. Because doctors have their own little quirks about what they want their family members courtesy they want to see from when they see a doctor and that's part of it is communicating with you yeah well speaking you mentioned your family uh, your wife janelle and you have, you have six children correct mm-hmm. and how many grandchildren now 11 okay and there's do they start to take up a little bit more of your time you can spend a little more time with them nowadays well people ask me about the joy of getting old and number one i've tried to figure that out and that's been hard to decide but uh, number one, make sure you have plenty of kids. And believe me, that's not always the joy of getting old. But the, if you have plenty of kids, you'll have plenty of what? Grandkids. Yeah. And that's the joy of getting old. <laughs> so that tells you all about the relationship that I have with my grandkids yeah. and my wife, too. That's the real joy of, of getting old is, is, is being able to have a relationship with your grandkids. Yeah. That's amazing. With that, too, in terms of your own personal life, you mentioned previously that you had a major heart attack. Uh, we're fortunate to be here and ended up having a quadruple bypass. How did that change or affect your approach to daily life, and what did you change or, or what did you not change? Well, I think at that point in my uh, career, I was overworked and was overeating, drank too much champagne, uh, gained up to 195 pounds, and so it got my attention about I'm not bulletproof. Yeah. And it made me pay attention to uh, my own health. But up until that point, I was blowing and going. And I, and I really, in retrospect, I thought I was bulletproof. And it got my attention. So since then, I've kept my weight at 170, 169, 170. And I hadn't gained any weight. I've tried to, to stay active with some exercise. And I've, I hadn't had any, any type of alcohol uh, since that, that heart attack. No wine, no nothing. Really? Gave it up completely? Wow. Which is important. It made me realize that, that I wanted to have a, a longevity in my life. By the way, that brings up another question. Here's, a, here's another quiz for you. Who wants to be 80 years old? I think we all do. 
everybody that's 79. There you go. <laughs> right? Absolutely. Want to make it to so the next I finally year. realized yeah. that because yeah. I almost didn't make it. Yeah. How old was I when I had that heart attack? I can't remember now. 62 or something like that. Yeah. Your longevity is, yeah. is real important. Yeah. Your longevity and then your legacy. Yeah. Afterwards, so that's the, that's the two things that that I'm striving for right now. Yeah. Well, I think you're doing an excellent job. I do understand that one of the things you you, you didn't want to give up was chili dogs. You're a big fan of hot dogs. <laughs> That right? I say when I do that, I yeah. say don't tell my wife. <laughs> but you know when I, I cover it. football games yeah. on the weekend, I, I, I call them hot dog weekends because hey. that's all there is to eat. Yeah, you got to be your cheap. Now, now we don't even have hot dogs because of the virus. The, the the hot dog stands are shut down. So I go all day on Saturday, for example, and don't get anything to eat anymore. Same thing with the Redskins on Sunday. Yeah, that's where hot dog weekends come in. You know, everybody's got to cheat a little bit. Absolutely, you got to have that one little vice. Mm-hmm. One of the other couple hot topics that I know you've been influential in, but also talked a lot about and have extensive experiences is one return to play and also youth injuries. Uh, You've been instrumental in really trying to craft some regulations, some guidelines for youth sports, yet still we see a ton of injuries with this. If you had to give, you know, two, three pieces of advice to parents, coaches, and players of this young age, what are the three things that you would say we really need to focus on to reduce injuries in young athletes? Well, you know, uh, in year 2000 here in Birmingham, through our American Sports Medicine Institute, we started tracking youth sports injuries because I started seeing, I had five examining rooms to see new patients on Monday morning. And I really very rarely ever saw junior high or high school kids with what I called adult sports medicine injuries, like a Tommy John's injury, for example. And then all of a sudden on Monday morning, I'd start off in the first room, and there'd be a kid 14 years old, and I'd go to the second room, the third room, the fourth room, the fifth room, all full of, of kids, adolescents at, at young ages with adult injuries in sports. And I said to myself, my goodness, what's going on? So we started tracking them through our American Sports Medicine Institute to try to figure out what was the incidence and why was it happening. And since year 2000, we've seen at least a tenfold increase in youth sports injuries across the board in different sports. One of the big ones has been baseball, youth baseball, for example. So that really got my attention. And I I realized that in orthopedic surgery, we'd spent most of our time, most of our clinical time, and our research time in putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. And we spent very little time in what was most important, and that was prevention. So we started trying to get involved in prevention, particularly in youth sports. These kids don't know better. They don't know what's really happened to them. And the parents don't have a clue. Uh, The grandparents are a little bit more knowledgeable than the parents, but the grandparents have been around the horn. So we we rely on grandparents to help take care of their grandkids more than the parents. Anyway, we started researching what we could do through ASMI. And one of the things we did was we started working in youth baseball. I was on the board of the Little League International for 12 years, and I used my influence on that board to introduce what we call the pitch count to Little League youth baseball and softball to control the workload that these young players were involved in to try to prevent injuries. And the main thing we could do immediately was develop a pitch count for at certain ages, the number of pitches they could throw in a ball game and then it'd have to be shut down. 
and that did work. But we got involved in, in, in all of the different sports, and when I was president of the American Orthopedic Society of Sports Medicine, which is our main sports medicine society, I was president of that in, I think, 2010. And I used my influence as president to get everybody thinking that we needed to do more about prevention in sports in general, but particularly youth sports. So we started what we call the STOP program. And STOP's an acronym for Sports Trauma and Overuse Prevention in Youth Sports. And that's an education program at the grassroots levels for parents, grandparents, coaches, athletes. We use all of the orthopedic surgeons in sports medicine across the country to have uh, programs on Saturday afternoon educating the public and the parents and trying to develop uh, an action plan to prevent injuries. And that's been successful. To be perfectly honest with you, though, from my standpoint, uh, I still say we hadn't really made a dent in it. We're still seeing way too many injuries. Not only have the injuries increased, but the number of kids participating in sports has increased dramatically. Now, the percentage of kids in junior high participating in sports is astronomically uh, increased. So the injuries has also increased. Mm-hmm. But we're, we're still working on trying to educate the public. We've just recently started what we call the Coach Safely Act here in the state of Alabama. We got that passed in 2018, which is a state law that all youth coaches, volunteer coaches or, or, or paid coaches, coaching 14-year-old kids and younger, have to be accredited in sports medicine before That's they great. can coach. You know, most of these youth coaches are dads, mm-hmm. and they have no idea about first aid, recognition of, of sports injuries, and they have no idea about the liability they're putting themselves through, much less the, the poor care for recognition for their kids. So they have to take a test to coach. That's great. That test, by the way, has been put together by the foundation here, the ASMI, and also our foundation in Pensacola, the Andrews Research and Education Foundation. So it's a multi-modular test they take on the Internet free. And if they don't take it and pass it, they can't coach by state law. And then they have to take a, a review course on a yearly basis to stay up with what's going on in sports medicine. It, just the basic rules of, of recognition and first aid. So we've done a lot of things like that. That Probably uh, of all the things I've done in sports medicine, that's the things that we've done to prevent injuries has probably been the thing that I've been most proud of. The two things that you asked earlier that are the two things that we have to control is specialization. Mm-hmm. That means playing, specializing in playing one sport year-round with no rest. And then the other one is professionalism. That means training a kid as if he's a professional athlete at age 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 years of age. Training them like they're professional athletes all day, every day, overserved young athletes. That's another word that, that goes along with professionalism, and that word is overserved. That means you've thrown so much at them. Uh, pitching coach, uh, some families hire a full-time baseball pitching coach just for their family. That's how fanatical they are. And what you're doing with that is you're, you're overserving that young athlete to where he finally too much, yeah. and he quits. And what we're seeing now, that because of that, is statistics show that 70% of young athletes drop out of sports by age 13. 
because of the things that I just said, mm-hmm. peer pressure, coach pressure, whatever, and they drop out of sports, and they lose the benefits. We want them in sports, but we want them in safe sports. We want them to participate safely, and they lose all that benefit. Uh, and the two things in baseball that you, you need to know that drives the injuries in youth baseball is velocity and fatigue. And you add those two things together, they hurt their shoulder or their elbow or both. Yeah, so tr- It's a problem. It's a big problem out there, and we still got a long ways to go to control it. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's an interesting idea that with all the work that you've done, with the research that's been produced out of both institutions, understanding that year-round play without rest is not beneficial, that overuse and overserving is not beneficial, yet we still have this understanding uh, that, and you see it far more than most people do, where parents come in and the the thought is that if my kid doesn't make this team, he will never make the next team and his career is over. How do we combat that mentality? Unfortunately, uh, you have to change the, the culture of youth sports. And I'm hoping that grandparents can help do that because grandparents have got a lot more sense about their grandkids and worry more about them getting hurt than they actually did for their own kids, uh, which is natural. But you got to change the culture of youth sports and... That's very difficult to do. Right now, the old mighty dollar is controlling everything that they do, and that's that's why these kids are overserved. It's a problem. The one thing that they can do, and I, I want to point this out, is you talked about the need for rest periods. We call it active rest. And we think that in youth baseball, for example, every youth baseball player should have it at least two months off where he's not doing an overhead throwing sports for you parents out there, two months, preferably three to four months. Yeah. Because we used to do, as I said earlier in this podcast, when I came along, we did seasonal sports, but that's not what's happening right now. But they need preferably three to four months off so they can recuperate. Now, that's been known in, in Mother Nature for all of these hundreds and hundreds of years. Even the Bible says Sunday's supposed to be a day off, right? Absolutely. Not supposed to work. If you're a farmer, which I was, somewhat of one, you have to rotate your crops. You can't raise corn on the same field every year because you, you lose the minerals. So you have to rotate crops and you have to rest your fields if you're a farmer. And it's the same thing happens with the human body. But people don't understand that. But if we could just get that message across, it would eliminate some of the overuse injuries that we see. Well, that's proven in, as you mentioned, I think previously, the NFL draft class on the whole, I think it's over 70, 80, maybe 90% of those who are drafted are multi-sport athletes. I'll give you an example of that. In the Super Bowl two years ago between the New England Patriots and who was it? Was it Atlanta? Atlanta, right. In Atlanta, wasn't it? There were 95 players on those two rosters. There was a, a little study done. 90% of those players playing in that Super Bowl were uh, multi-sports athletes in high school. And the example of that, to get everybody's attention for the parents out there, Tom Brady played football, basketball, baseball, and the fourth one must have been track. Yeah. All four sports in high school. And most of those athletes that did that didn't really specialize in a specific sport until they were a senior in high school. 
And even then, some of them played multiple sports like Tom Brady did. So the word is, before you become a star in one sport, you need to be an athlete first. And being an athlete first means you develop your body as an athlete. And For example, if you're a single sport specialist, you, you develop usually one side of your body to do one thing and one side, the other side of your body to do something else. You're not an athlete. So you need to be an athlete first for those parents out there that are bringing these young kids along. I think it's a great piece of advice, and that really helps kind of encapsulate everything. So uh, be, be an athlete first. Limit this idea of sports specialization. Reduce over-serving of these athletes and really try to find time to rest. Those are things that are really can help prevent injuries and, and really preserve our youth athletes going forward. A couple other things here. We'll kind of jump around a little bit. But one athlete that I think comes to mind for a lot of people that really kind of changed a lot of your trajectory is Roger Clemens. Would you agree with that in terms of when you treated him, that probably set off a little bit of a, a chain reaction? Yeah, you know, there are certain signature athletes in my career that I've been fortunate enough to follow them. That's one of the things about the joy of sports medicine is when you have an athlete like that, you need to stay up with them or patient in general, any patient. Uh, see how they recover, see how successful they are in life. All of a sudden, they're bringing their kids back to you. They're bringing their grandkids back to you. So you, you enjoy their career with them. And I've been able to do that with the athletes that I've taken care of. And since I've, I did Roger Clemens, he was one of my signature baseball players way back when I was in Columbus, Georgia, with the arthroscope, by the way. And he was probably the first baseball player to ever have an arthroscope of his shoulder. Wow. And you see how successful he was. But since then, I communicate with him regular. He's been on several different fundraising things with me as a guest speaker. And I've operated on two of his baseball sons. So it's that's the joy of sports medicine. Yeah. And that came from the likes of a Roger Clemens way, way back. I forgot what year I operated on him, but it was probably 79 or something like that. Gotcha. That the next year, by the way, coming yeah. back from that scope procedure, he set the major league record for the, the most strikeouts in a game. Yeah, I remember reading that. Yeah, it's impressive. The one thing I think is, is really interesting contrast is that if you take someone like Ro- Roger Clemens or countless number of athletes that you've operated on who their success story is is lauded and, and very visible that doesn't happen 100 percent of the time there are some athletes just don't get back to the ability they want to what would what would you consider one of your biggest failures throughout your career either with a patient care or something else because i think failures are important to learn from what would you say that you've learned from in terms of one of your failures well i, I can tell you that, uh, the way i look at that is the only results you ever really remember are your are your bad ones and I wake up on Monday morning after getting refreshed from the weekend, getting a good night's sleep, and I wake up early with a fresh mind. And all of a sudden, I'm laying in bed trying to figure out what I've got to do, and the thing that I'm thinking about with my, my mind all cleared up are some of the patients that I've got out there that aren't doing that well. It's what I call my memory list. And I'll go to the office, and I'll start calling them, checking on them. So they're the ones that that pop into my mind early on Monday morning. And let me tell you about bad results. Uh, You know, everybody's got bad results. And as a physician, the mistake that we make is that when you have a bad result, you try to distance yourself from it. Well, he's uh, he's seeing another doctor, and uh, he didn't. My surgery didn't work, and we won't call and communicate with him. And that's a mistake. You need to show them that you care about them. And you need to pay more attention to the ones that aren't doing well 
then you are the ones that are doing great. Uh, but for human nature as a physician is to back away and not communicate. And when you do that, the patient says, well, he doesn't care about me. And then you create a problem. So you have to fight against that because that's a, a normal reaction as a doctor to do that. And you have to make yourself go call them. You'd be surprised. You'd think they're mad at you or something, and you call them up on the phone and, and ask them how they're doing. Uh, hope so and so, you, you, I understand you had surgery. You operate on by a very good doctor. How are you getting along? I hope everything works this time. Stay in touch with me. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in your in you getting well. If there's anything I can do for you, and and you'd be surprised how that relationship is bonded at that point, even though it's been a failure for you as far as getting them taken care of them. So remember, the only results you really remember are your bad ones. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it's that can be said about a lot of, of surgeons or, or high-level jobs, but I think that your point of not you know shying away and not being afraid to confront the mistake, because everyone's human, everyone will make mistakes, but showing those patients that you care I think is, is an incredibly important point. You remember what we said earlier about making sure they know that you're compassionate? about their activity. In that same vein of this idea of, of you know, thinking about the cases didn't get, didn't go as, as planned and the patients who are still having some difficulties, you've done over some 50,000 surgeries, maybe more. And I was talking to one of your, uh, uh, one of the other docs here, Dr. Benton Emblem, and he said that even today when you approach and you have a big surgery coming up, it still keeps you up at night. You still are thinking about that in terms of how you can make sure that that surgery goes well and that you avoid any potential complications. How is that still part of your mentality even after you've done that same surgery thousands and thousands of times i don't know but i can tell you as you get older you worry more about your patients than you ever did when you're your age i remember in days when i would have multiple surgeries uh, i went through them hope they all did well but nowadays when i've got surgeries to do i usually wake up about four o'clock in the morning and i'm sitting there have I got everything organized? What about that patient? What did I forget this on him? Did I call his trainer? Did I call his his therapist? Did I call his coach? Did I do this? Have I got all the tests I need? Uh, how am I going to really approach his problem? And so, I, as you get older, and, and not only just with me, but my the peers in my age group that are still working, we all say the same thing. Uh, we worry a lot more about our patients and making sure we do the right thing than we did when we were younger. I don't know why it's like that, but I can guarantee you it is. So that's just part of, uh, of the aging process, I guess. It's, it's why we worry more about our grandkids than we did our own kids. Yeah. Wisdom. Yeah, I don't, you wisdom. know, it, it, you've seen a lot of different things happen. Yeah. Of all those surgeries, what is your favorite surgery to do? You have a favorite? <laughs> a successful one. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have a favorite surgery. Okay. The two things that have really become sort of my signature surgeries, though, is that ACL surgery uh, and uh, Tommy John surgery. Those are the things that I probably do more of. By the way, you mentioned how many surgeries have I done. I get asked that question all the time, and I'm not about to put any numbers out there because uh, that'd be like bragging. You can't do that. So I finally figured out how to answer that question. I'll give you the answer. You may, may want to use it one of these days. The answer is uh, too many to count and not enough to quit. <laughs> I love that. Oh, that's fantastic. I will definitely use that. I'm not I'm not there yet. I won't be for a long time, but that's a fantastic But quote. it'll come, okay? Yeah. By the way, the most important surgery you're doing is the next one you do. Yeah. Going forward, touch on a couple more other things. One of the other athletes you've uh, was a little bit unique that you operated on. It was kind of still, I think, 
early on in terms of this idea of of operating and getting patients back to play relatively quickly was Jack Nicholas. Um, <laughs> and that experience, he, I, I think you, I don't know all the details, but you operated on him. He ended up winning a skins tournament later within a couple of weeks. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, some kind of way I got connected when I was with Dr. Houston through the uh, professional golfers. And I think Jerry Pate really initiated the relationship with me with different golfers. And Jerry Pate, of course, was an Alabama golfer that won the uh, U.S. Amateur when he was at Alabama and also won the U.S. Open right after he, he, he got out of Alabama, one of the youngest U.S. Open winners ever. And for some reason, I got to be friends with Jerry. And from Jerry, I started having a whole bunch of different golfers come to visit me. And when we were in Columbus, Georgia, we had the, the uh, Southern Open PGA Tournament there at Green Island Hills Country Club where I was a member. And they didn't have anybody covering those players. So I volunteered to cover those players and be the medical doctor out there when they came into town. That hadn't been done before. Anyway, so I got to know a number of different golfers. And and all of a sudden, I met Jack Nicklaus. And uh, he had a knee problem. He came to see me. And I did a scope on his knee, and I remember the unique thing about his surgery was I had him draped out in the operating room in Columbus, and uh, I looked down at his knee, and, and he was all covered up. All I could see was his knee, and I said to myself, I realized, oh, and I'm operating on Jack Nicholas. <laughs> I said, I hope I've got the right knee. <laughs> Obviously, I did. Yeah. And I scoped his knee, cleaned it up, and and he he's a unbelievable person and motivated he was another motivated type person and it just goes to show you if you pick the right athlete to operate on they make you look pretty good as a physician so two weeks later he was playing in the skins game in Hawaii and he made a big long putt on the last hole to win I don't remember how much money it was it was a lot of money and he was only two weeks post-op wow and I saw him hold his putter up in the air and jump up and down on the knee that I just operated on so that was a proud moment. Oh, I'm sure. Well, especially uh, with two weeks. That's again, so soon. Jack Nicholas is probably the only person in the world that could have done that. Yeah. <laughs> kind of speaks to some of these other athletes in terms of the recovery when you think about the idea of returning to play. So much of that is probably a mental game. Uh, obviously, there's the physical aspect where you have to develop the muscle strength. But from what I understand, you're saying with a lot of these is that you, if you don't have the motivation and competitiveness, it can take longer or it can delay you. Would, that, yeah, would you agree with the that? The problem with that is you, you take an athlete at a high level that's, that returns quick, quicker than you probably would ever believe. Like an Adrian Peterson? Yeah, you know, like an Adrian Peterson. Uh, you got to remember they're genetically inclined. Yeah. And the problem with that, that's good and bad because these young kids in high school hear about that because they publicize the fact that they come back quick. ESPN talks about it. Uh, doctors brag about it, but you're creating a problem because these young kids think they can do the same thing. And number one, they don't—they're not the same athlete at the same level at the same age. They don't have the same motivation. They're young, uh, and they try to come back quick, and they get rehurt. So you really got to be careful with getting the word out about Adrian Peterson's unique, and you can't do that. You're not in the same category. Yeah. Young athletes, by the way try to come back early there's a significant re-injury rate in those kids they have to realize their professional athlete has nothing to do all day long with the very best of medical care the very best of physical therapy the very best of athletic training and and full-time that's all they do whereas a young athlete 
may see a therapist once a week, three times a week. He's got to go to school. Uh, and he doesn't have the same type of care that's available to a professional athlete besides the fact that they're young and more vulnerable to injury. And, 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 and you got to really be careful with making sure they don't come back too early. Yeah. So this the standard of you know six months after an ACL is... is I think that's ludicrous. Long. Yeah. You know, let me tell you, for those families out there, statistics, peer review articles will tell you that if you got a young soccer player, female in high school, and tries to come back, and that's what they do, they try to come back and play soccer at six months, there's about a 30% incidence that they'll re-tear the graft and the the knee you operated on, or they'll tear the ACL in the other knee. 30% incidence. Yeah, that's at, incredibly at high. six months. Yeah. For every month they come back shy of nine months, there's a 10% increase incidence of re- getting re-hurt. So if you add that up at six months, there's a 30% chance. So you don't you don't advertise over, your, over your, the Internet that you can operate on an ACL or with a kid in high school and they'll be ready to play in six months. And that's a, a, a public relations advertisement that a lot of doctors are doing, and it's, yeah. it's just not right. All right. So it's, uh, it's producing a problem. I know what I'm talking about because I'm making a living off of redoing ACLs that come back early in high school. Yeah. Problem. Which is way too bad. We briefly mentioned before talking about one of the you know revolutionary aspects of sports medicine was the arthroscope. Where do you think the next revolution from our career in sports medicine is coming from? There's only one answer to that, and that's the biologics. Uh, and that's stem cell therapy, uh, for lack of better terminology. Uh, that's all coming. And by the way, we're at the tip of the iceberg with, with what we know about uh, the biologics at this point. And I know here at the Andrews Sports Medicine, y'all are working real hard on trying to figure out how, when, how much, where, what uh, related to the biologics should you, should you be doing, particularly in sports. And, and in sports, that's where it's being learned. And then it'll, it'll flow over into all aspects of orthopedic surgery. But we're only at the tip of the iceberg. In Pensacola, we've got a stem cell research lab where we're doing research on it. And we still don't know exactly when, how, what, how often, uh, which one, and does it really work? Uh, So right now, all we can really say about the biologics, at least from my standpoint, you can't make false statements. You can't say, if if I put this in your knee, it's going to regenerate your articular cartilage. The only thing we really can say is it's a strong anti-inflammatory and it will help your pain and swelling, but we can't say that it has any regenerative power, at least at this point. At some point in the future, it, we'll be able to say that, but it's the new revelation in sports medicine. It will have the same benefit to sports medicine that the arthroscope has had, I think, anyway, that, and I've said that for years. I'm waiting on it still, though, because yeah. it's not quite here yet. Yeah. Well, I think that transition where... You're changing a surgical technique versus relying on complex biology to influence an outcome that you're trying to craft is probably a little bit different, but I think you're right. I think this is one of those things where you have to be very open-minded to. Oh, yeah. You got, remember what I said? You got to be open-minded. Right. I damn sure don't want to be left in the dust and not know about it. No, not at all. Not with this. I'm learning about it. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Uh, I'm a facilitator for it. I've got people that are a lot smarter than I am that are doing it. One of them was one of your doctors I just was talking to a while ago, Dr. Colbert. Yeah. So I'm relying on them to push the envelope, but I'm not holding them back, believe me. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, a couple last questions here. Do you have a favorite book? 
or movie the bible i'm not much of, you know, of a book reader though so when i say book i would say the bible is is the is the correct answer i'll give you a, a scenario here that happened right here in our auditorium next door when i was here in practice with your group i had the honor students from Troy that would come visit here for a day and they would watch me in surgery and they would see me in clinic then toward the end of the afternoon I was over in the auditorium over here and there were about 30 of them they were the honor students and the president of Troy University came with them and they would always bring one of their professors with them too and they were about 30 kids that were honor students at Troy toward the end of the day they would always We'd go to the auditorium and I'd have question and answers and give them a little talk about motivation or something. And the professor that came with them that day was an English teacher. And so I was telling them about success and this, that, and the other. And she leaned over, sitting beside me, and whispered in my ear, said, Tell them how important it is to read books. <laughs> I looked at her and I said, She wants me to tell you all how important it is to read books. I don't know about that. I've written some books I haven't read. <laughs> so that blew her mind. Oh, yeah. I'm sure she would love that. Oh, Lord, That's she, amazing. Yeah. She didn't know what to say. <laughs> and I had to make up. I said, well, you know, reading is really... <laughs> when I told I her, yeah. I said, I've written some books I haven't read. That's amazing. But when I have a book, I usually take the book and open to the... I read the back two pages. <laughs> and then I get a synopsis. Yeah. And that's it for that's me. That's amazing. Hey, that works. That's amazing. But, uh, that's, don't, that's one of those things. Don't do as I do. Do as I say, do. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Did you ever, uh, as a kid, pretend to be a certain athlete? I think for me, I grew up in Colorado. I grew up watching John Elway, so I'd play in my front yard pretending I was John Elway. Was there an athlete that you pretended to be? Well, I I grew up on the farm, and then when I moved to Homer, Louisiana, we lived on the outskirts of town, and behind my home was nothing but woods, creeks, briars, bamboo poles, and I pretended to be Tarzan. Really? And that's a whole other story. Tarzan was played in the movies as Tarzan was Don Bragg. Okay. And Don Bragg held the world record in the pole vault at 15 feet, 7 and a half inches. And I was a kid about 10, 11, 12 years old. And I wanted to be Tarzan. So being Tarzan, man, I wanted to be a pole vaulter. And I cut out bamboo poles. We didn't have any big ones like this. So I had little ones, but I was a little kid then about this big around and I started pole vaulting in the backyard that's how I started pole vaulting and became my college sport and as I got older I'd have to put two of those bamboo poles taped together because they they wouldn't be strong enough but I wanted to be Tarzan and Don Bragg and when I got to high school as a in the eighth grade back in those days we didn't have junior high eighth grade you went to high school on the track situation i was already vaulting for the varsity because i could beat everybody even the seniors wow because i'd been pole vaulting as a kid and it got me as the full scholarship that i got to go to lsu as a pole vaulter but that's how i started was my guy that i was trying to be like was tarzan that's amazing what was your personal record for height uh a little over 15 feet that's that's impressive that's a scary sport oh lord it's a great sport i still dream about breaking the world record which i never Never did, but... Isn't the world record over 20 feet now? That's something insane. That, that's, that's from a patient of mine who's uh, from Lafayette, Louisiana. And wow. He broke the world record in the indoor when he was... He had the, the 
close to the world record as a senior in high school. Then he was a freshman at LSU, wow. where I was, and he broke uh, the world record indoor. And uh, this, and recently he just broke the world record outdoor at 20 feet two inches, That's which insane. is like holding the pole here and getting over the bar at the ceiling up there that's that's, it's, insane. that's unbelievable yeah. but they've got you know the poles are, fi- are made out of some kind of fiberglass now yeah. you bend them almost double and it it shoots you up there whereas when i was playing don bragg you had a metal pole and the hike you could go was how high you could hold on the pole and push off yeah which was for me 15 feet was Pretty as good, good as i could yeah. do it was good enough to win the SEC, though. Yeah, that's impressive. Well, we'll finish up with two questions here. The first one, if you consider yourself and everything that you've done and everything you've, you've become, the people you've treated, the lives you've improved, if you had to say, who is Dr. Andrews in one sentence, what would it be? And then question two is, obviously, you've established uh, this idea of, of the legacy with the fellowships, with the programs such as STOP and all these other aspects. What is the main thing that you want your legacy to be when you finally decide to to no longer be the, the guy operating? Well, you say, who is this guy, Jim Andrews? Well, number one, I'd say I'm the luckiest guy in the world, and I have no idea how I got here. And I've never assumed anything. And... The legacy that I'd like to, to leave is two things. Uh, the number of, of former fellows that I've trained and how successful that they are and, and will be and where they are in the sports medicine world around the country uh, will be what I'm most proud of. And then secondarily, I want to be known as, the, as somebody that really cared not only for his patients, but he cared for prevention of injuries particularly in the youth sports. So if I can accomplish that at the twilight of my career, then I'll be ready to hand it over, and and hopefully I pick the right people, and I know I have to carry that legacy on. And here at the Andrews Sports Medicine in Birmingham, I know that legacy is going to be carried on as it is right now, and I'm not worried one iota about it. Uh, I don't have to do anything. I don't have to touch it. I don't have to mold it. It's already there, and it will, it will. I'll be very proud of, of everything that y'all are doing here. That's an excellent way to end. As we conclude today, uh, here Dr. Andrews is actually poised to walk upstairs and do what he does better than anyone else: lay steel to skin and fix the injured. Uh, most people here are happy to find a job that puts food on the table. Some are graced with actually enjoying that endeavor, and few of us are fortunate enough to be born into a calling we love, one we wake up eager to pursue. And then here we have Dr. James Andrews at 78 fulfilling his purpose and simultaneously restoring purpose directly and indirectly to thousands of lives better than anyone else has done it before. So Dr. Andrews, I cannot thank you enough for all the time you spent today. It's been a pleasure and, and an absolute honor. Thank you. Well, I'm impressed with your your knowledge. I, I, you know, I, when you first asked me to do this, I said, oh gosh, I've got too much to do. And I got to thinking about your future and, and all the things that, that I've been impressed that you're doing. I said, you know, I can't tell that young man I can't do this. So I called you back right away after I thought about it and said, hey, put me on. Well, I, I Thank you very much for spending the time and getting ready for this. This is probably the most comprehensive, well-organized podcast I've ever done. So thank you for allowing me to be with you. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. I think they're ready for you upstairs. Yeah. As the final seconds tick off today's podcast, we here at the Victory Over Injury Podcast and the Andrews Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center would like to sincerely thank you for taking time out of your day to listen to a deeper dive into the world of sports medicine. 
We hope you enjoyed it. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Ryan. Until next time, be well and take care. Goodbye. Next week on the Victory Over Injury podcast. Who's been one of your your most entertaining or fun athletes to work with uh, in one of these experiences? Breeze, he's a practical joker and he thinks he's a funny guy. And sometimes he is, sometimes he's not. But uh, that remains to be seen on who he's pranking. But we were going out to lunch one day, which he would come in in the morning and he'd literally be in rehab for about three and a half, four hours. Then we'd break for lunch, many times go together, and then come back and rehab two, three hours in the afternoon. So we went to lunch at a local place here in Birmingham. We were pulling into the parking deck, and uh, at the time I had a very small sports car, and it was two-seater, and a guy almost hit my front of the car. And I, I just kind of put my hands up, like palms up, like, what are you doing? He went down this alley really fast, and Drew was actually talking to Coach Payton about possibly becoming a Saint at the time, New Orleans Saint player. And this guy, like, whips around the parking lot and pretends like he's going to rear end me, uh, revs up the engine and all this. And I'm like, wow, I, I don't know what's going on here. I didn't think it was a big deal. I just kind of went like this. So I go to get out of the car, and, and Drew goes, Coach, i got to call you back. I think we're going to get in a fight. Andrew Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center has built a worldwide reputation for excellence in sports medicine and orthopedic patient care, research, education, and prevention. We couldn't have done it without our dedicated physicians and staff and the hundreds of thousands of patients who have trusted in our team to aggressively pursue victory over injury. Our practice works as a team to deliver multidisciplinary sports medicine and orthopedic care, a concept pioneered by our co-founder, Dr. James Andrews. This is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to the podcast is at the user's own risk. The content on this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.